everyone, and welcome back to the Rumcast, episode seven. Hey, uh, this is John Gullah here in Miami, Florida, and uh, with us we have Will Hookinga up in Nashville. And Will, how are you doing? And how's your quarantining experience going thus far? I'm good, John. I my my quarantine. I'm you know fortunate enough to where it hasn't been super severe or you know weird so far in terms of how much I'm having to alter my daily schedule um so yeah. i'm you know fortunate in that respect um my wife samantha and i have been finding ways to still be social and connect with the outside world um one of them is pretty cool actually i i think is kind of becoming more popular there's this we're not we don't like play a lot of games and stuff like mm-hmm. i know i know that you are are very into are, i believe Definitely. in the community they're known as tabletop games is that correct Yes, okay. I'm a big tabletop gamer as well. That is my other near and dear hobby. Okay, yeah. So rums and tabletop games they go they go hand in hand. Um, they so, absolutely can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that rhymed. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so we're not super into games, but um, there's this this game that I think is really popular called Code Names, and they've created this online version that I think is becoming somewhat popular to play in this era of social distancing and quarantine. Yeah, and Basically, you know, you you connect with uh, friends that are somewhere else. We use a combination of FaceTime and Zoom and have been playing Codenames and having fun doing that so far. So I did want to ask you, are you, because I know you're into gaming as we covered, are you familiar with Codenames? I am very familiar with Codenames. Uh, I own a copy of it. Um, I I will shyly say that I probably own over 400 tabletop oh games. Oh my god! So this this outweighs your rum collection, right? <laughs> it does. Um, <laughs> that I, I would say that is my first love is is tabletop games, and I try to play as often as possible. But as you mentioned, this time uh, right now with everything uh, social distancing in place, not a good time for board games in person. Right. Um, so I actually think it's really awesome to hear that uh, I've been playing some online games as well because I want to support my hobby but it's really cool to hear that other people are still finding ways to do this as well and uh, Codenames is one of those games that I think is an awesome game Uh, it did win the game of the year and quite a few awards a few years ago Um, it is a really fun what we would call a party game a party game yeah. Okay. So similar to how Rum has its real core enthusiasts, and then it also has people that are kind of exploratory, or you're like, yeah, I like Rum, but don't know maybe quite as much about it. Okay. The the games, tabletop games, uh, has a similar kind of feel to it. There's people like myself who are enthusiasts, and then there's people who are like, of course I love games. You know, those are great, but then have no real clue about the extent okay. of the hobby that's out there. So what you're telling me is that Code Names is kind of like, uh, or party games would sort of be like the spiced rum of the game community world. Is that correct? <laughs> I think that's an apt comparison. Yes. Okay. Um, great. I love that. In a way, well, so I would say the caveat is Code Names is a really good game of of a party game. There are party games out there that a lot of tabletop gamers would be like, "Ugh, a party game." Hence the the spiced rum. <laughs> kind of okay. reference um code names is one of those that broke the mold okay uh, in the sense that it is a a game that really almost everybody enjoys okay um very few detractors so um i'm glad to hear you got that experience of playing that and maybe someday when this uh this calms down you can uh, play it on the table as well because it's really fun in person also yeah i i like i didn't even know beforehand that there was something beyond the online version so i'm interested <laughs> yeah. to see what that looks like 
Um, but I'm also interested in talking all about Australian rum, which is yeah. the subject of today's episode. So we were lucky enough to talk with Steve McGarry, who is a distiller at the Binley Distillery um, near Brisbane, Australia. So mm-hmm. over there uh, on the Gold Coast in Australia, for those of you like me who were unfamiliar with Australian geography or needed to brush up on it, at least. <laughs> Um, this episode kind of came about, you know, one of the things I love about rum is continuously discovering that it's made in places that I didn't even realize it was being made in. And on top of that, that it's been made there for decades and decades and and centuries even. So Australia is one of those places I, I had heard of the Binley distillery, but it was just vague surface level awareness Steve got in touch with us. He he was a fan of the podcast and sort of opened our eyes to this whole history of this category of Australian rum that both you and right. I, I think, had very little awareness of. And so we were like, man, we need to get Steve on the podcast. We need to find out all about um, not only what Binley Distillery is doing, because it turns out they are doing and have done, you know, for a long time, some really interesting stuff. But we need to find out about the whole category of australian rum and you know let's let's find out what we've been ignorant of all this time and and let's dig into this history so it was it was a really fun conversation yeah i think we knew that there's australian rum being made and being produced but it really had no idea the long history that exists behind it yeah and that is fascinating and uh, i guess you know this is also speaks to a little bit of us being americans and and kind of being centralized in this (laughs) kind of area over here for sure typical uh, american ignorance exactly that's a factor. But we were recognizing it and yes. we're doing something about it, which is we we were able to have this really cool conversation with Steve about the history of not only Benley, but Australian rum. And it has really enriched our position, I think, about rum worldwide, um, which was one of the focuses we wanted when we started this podcast. Yeah. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and also, it's not all it's not like everything exciting that they did was all in the past. They're doing some really interesting stuff right now. And yeah, as you'll hear from Steve, you know, they're getting more and more interest from even independent bottling companies um, that I know many of our listeners will have heard of. I don't want to spoil too much of the interview, but um, you know, people from all over the world are coming to them now and seeking out what they're doing, wanting to capture it and release it, you know, to markets far away from Australia. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to get into this. Anything else before we kick it over to our interview with Steve? Yeah, I think it's a really awesome thing that they're spreading out beyond Australia. As you mentioned, that's that's really cool. And maybe at some point we'll even get to see some Benley here in the States. Yeah. I would be all for it. Yeah. So I think uh, let's get to the interview and let the people hear what we, uh, we, we were discussing. All right, let's do it. All right. So we are here with Steve McGarry from Binley Rum. Steve, how are you doing over there in Australia uh, today? Uh, great. Thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's always best to start. I, I'd love for you to just share uh, a little bit with us about your role at, at Binley and, and how you got started there. Okay. Yes. So I've uh, recently joined the, the Binley Artisan Distillery, uh, which happens to be the oldest operational distillery here in Australia. Uh, we've been going 136 years uh, since 1884. And uh, my role here is the distillery production manager. So uh, the importance and the history of Australian rum is, is not lost on me. I'm actually uh, humbled uh, every day 
that I get and the privilege that I get to work uh, towards creating a legacy for the future of Australian rum and not just its history. To keep it brief, uh, a decade ago, I was undertaking a research PhD in uh, biorefineries. Oh, wow. Uh, to create uh, renewable fuels. And so part of that process was uh, extracting ethyl esters actually from, from algae. Oh, okay. For uh, fuel sources, but also for high value products like omega 3s, your omega 6s, and those, those kind of products. So, from that focus, I was actually headhunted by a US uh, biofuel startup company. Uh, and they, they were expanding into a pilot project out here in Australia where we were looking at both ethanol fermentation and distillation for, for fuels but also extracting the oil from the algae for, for biodiesel and higher value products. Wow. So from that, uh, then I saw the commercial realities, yeah, the, the uh, successes and failures. Um, and, and, and along that journey, I started to pick up on the craft distilling boom uh, over in North America and the UK. Right. And out of that, I uh, thought, well, okay, it's only a matter of time till distilleries start really popping up across Australia. Uh, which we have obviously seen uh, more recently. And if we fast forward a couple of years, uh, I happened to relocate to the US and spent quite a bit of time over in the UK with my wife. Uh, and we, we were based in Florida at the time and we considered hey. setting up a uh, rum distillery or Caribbean-style rum to export back into the Australian market. So we relocated back to Australia and just prior to joining to, uh, here at Beanley, I was the a coordinator for a rum distillery uh, in North Queensland, in the middle of where about forty uh, percent of Australia's sugarcane is grown. Okay. And so that in those areas, the sugar industry is the lifeblood of the local communities. Hmm. And now today, we're uh, based on current events. We're manufacturing, dispatching our high strength ethanol as quickly as we, as possible for for hand sanitizer. Mm -hmm. uh, out to our local state health departments and, and emergency services for this uh, COVID uh, or coronavirus crisis. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook when you guys had posted that, and that's uh, that's really amazing. I, in fact, I had that on my list. I didn't want to make it a focus of this interview, but I had that on the list to ask you in terms of like, how does that happen in, with a decision process being made to kind of say, okay, we're stopping rum, we're going to do hand sanitizer. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about how that happened in the last few days? Or weeks? Uh, sure. Uh, with our production facilities here at Beanley, we we have both a, a pot and a triple column in our uh, setup. So we do produce uh, high strength neutral uh, cane spirit, and as uh, we do offer mm -hmm. uh, vodka and uh, gin products as well that we can distill. Um, so based on what's going on at the moment, we've actually uh, stopped our rum focus, and we're we're 100% focused on our, on our neutral spirit, uh, which is then being manufactured for the, the focus of hand sanitizer across and to supply across Australia. And was that like just something you and, and a few people got together and you said, you know what, we need to pitch in and we need to help out with this and, and you just went for it? Or was there like a significant process that had to happen? And uh, Basically, uh, we were approached by the uh, local state government as one of a handful of state large column uh, steel or ethanol uh, distilleries in, in Queensland where we are. And uh, with our owners of the company and collaborating with the uh, state government mm -hmm. uh, to look at uh, manufacturing this, this hand sanitizer as quickly as we can and getting it out to 
particularly to government departments, there hospitals, uh, also uh, police, emergency services. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's it's been pretty amazing to see. Uh, you know, we've seen a similar over here in the states. Um, lots of craft distilleries jumping in and right. manufacturing uh, that high proof alcohol. You know, to be used in sanitizer for you know various um, hospital organizations, government organi- organizations, you name it. So it's 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 inspiring to see you know you guys all the way over there on the other side of the world jumping in. You know, to try to help out. Uh, you know, fight the same thing. Yeah, on behalf of a lot of people, we just want to say thank you. Uh, and and to all the distilleries that have done that. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And uh, we're simply doing, and I think we all recognize, uh, we're all doing everything we absolutely can. And yes, I, I, I've seen the same thing on this side, looking over at, at what the US and UK distilleries are doing. But I, I absolutely will, will back up that basically the Australian distilling industry is 100% behind doing this as well uh, again as quickly as we can getting out to as many people as we can awesome um well steve i, I want to return to something you mentioned you know you you brought up kind of australia's long history with rum and one of the things that, that i felt a little uh sheepish about i guess going into this interview was how much of it i was completely unaware of uh you know it was one of the reasons i was excited to talk to you was i feel behind in catching up on everything that's been happening in australia yeah. and rum go, like you said going all the way back to the 19th century so um i, I know many of our listeners are kind of in the same boat and i I'd love, you know, first of all, you alluded to it a little bit, but how far back does rum in Australia go? And can you give us a little insight into what the industry has looked like there historically, just for context? Sure. Uh, Very few people realize or understand there's actually 150 years of of rum history in Australia back to the 1860s. Wow. And uh, with that, uh, when when you really look into what was happening uh, back in the late 1800s, there's amazing uh, volume output. Mm. from some of these distilleries um now if i wind it back further in the early days uh when sydney was was first settled there was uh rum coming out of the british colony in india about bengal rum uh and and that time it was prized uh in the colony but again even more so was was the jamaican rum considering the tyranny of distance from bringing it over from the caribbean Mm -hmm. uh we we get to 1808 and then we have in Australia we have the infamous Rum Rebellion, and uh, which was largely a political arm wrestle at the time, uh, and actually involved Captain Bly, which is the one and the same in the mutiny of the Boutney. <laughs> and we see a couple of rums out there today with his name on them. Okay. Uh, I guess during these early days in in our uh, Sydney colony at the time, the rum was esteemed, and it was basically used as a bartering currency. Uh, so much so that the uh, importers at the time, uh, they were importing the, the rum from India, but they almost faced bankruptcy because very few people at the time actually had a currency or money to pay their bills. They were actually trying to trade the rum back to the importer themselves. Wow. <laughs> so uh, moving on from there, 1823 uh, was the first commercial distillery in Australia, but it was using uh, imported milled sugar. Okay. Uh, to be able to manufacture the alcohol. Um, however, there, the sugarcane was first brought out in the first fleet uh, settlement back in 1788. But around around the Sydney area, it was too cold, mm. too, uh, mm. too temperate climate to, to grow the sugarcane. 
so then we start getting forward into the 1850s and, and further up the Australian coastline, more tropical uh, climates, uh, and around the Brisbane area, which is where Bean Lee is actually located. So in the, the 1850s, 1860s, we really start to see the sugarcane in- industry here start to expand. And then with that, then you've got sugar mills popping up or proliferating along the coast with the sugar plantations at the same time. And so unsurprisingly, I'm guessing around the same time, you start to see more rum, right? Yes. So uh, then then we start to get into the 1870s, 1880s. And actually with with the early uh, rum distilleries here that uh, started really producing volume and, and even exporting it back into the UK, into London. Um, and even to Paris. So wow. when in the 1880s, 1890s, we start to see the, like the world fairs, the intercolonial exhibitions uh, over in Paris, over in London, and we see Australian rum starting to be awarded trophies and, and gold medal honours. Wow. So the, the, con- the context of those events in their day, and, the, and just to give perspective to people, that Australian rum was, was internationally awarded in the same era, we see the successes of Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, uh, the Eiffel Tower being constructed in Paris mm-hmm. and the Statue of Liberty being built in New York. Wow. In good company. Yeah. And Binley Distillery also, they were started in roughly the 1880s. Is that correct? Uh, yes. This particular site we're on did begin as a uh, sugar milk plantation. Mm-hmm. And then the distillery started in 1884. And is it also true that the, the pot still that you all were working with, that that was purchased from a guy who had been like making rum illegally on a boat called the Walrus and that went up, up and down the Albert River? Is that also true? Yes. Yeah, so the with the Walrus, it was a, a boat uh, that was built uh, in early 1860s. And we, we know and we have record here at the distillery between 1869 and 1872. It was operating and licensed as a floating sh- uh, sugar mill <laughs> that would, would go up and down the rivers and pull up next to the plantations and take their sugar cane, create the uh, process it uh, for the sugar, but also have molasses as, as a byproduct. So they decided to, and they got licensed to put the uh, uh, wooden vat still mm-hmm. on, the, on the boat itself and was uh, a floating distillery. That seems like a unique type of license you would need for that. <laughs> uh, yes, and I, and I think at that time it, it only lasted a few years with the authorities before they started to realise of of what the, the amount of rum or spirit that was being. Um, there, there may have been some tax evasion there. <laughs> yes, possibly. Right, so right, right. Then, yes, so that was that was in the earlier days prior to the actual uh, Benley distillery in 1884 and we, we do know further downstream the river here there is some some older uh, estates and plant sugar plantations and uh, older rum distilleries that that predate the Benley site wow and so uh, so Steve I know you had just signed on with Benley back in January correct yes okay and and you had mentioned that the Benley's history is not lost on you and obviously you know quite a bit about that and, and about Australian history of rum um, so I kind of wanted to ask if coming to a distillery that has such a long history itself if you view that as a, a kind of a special challenge for you or is that maybe perhaps more of a comfort to you and you know what are your first thoughts you you get the job and now what are your thoughts? 
oh, just the absolute privilege to to uh, to work amongst this this site and this history every day. Um, I, I purposely actually um, first thing I do every day is take five or ten minutes just to walk through the particularly our original warehouse, and we've got uh, maturation vats here that are 130 year old vats, 100 year old vats. Wow! And just just to soak up that the smell, the sights, yeah. Oh, um, just to, just to take it on board and and to center me uh, each and every day. It's it's fantastic. It sounds like rum meditation. I love it. <laughs> I do try. <laughs> uh, so I, I do want to shift the focus a little bit to the rum you're making now uh, at Bentley. And I, I think uh, for me, you know, the place I always like to start with is the, the raw ingredients. So uh, I know you're using molasses, uh, the yeast, the water. Talk us through just where your materials come from right now. Yes, uh, absolutely. Those three ingredients, uh, we are 100% molasses focused. And as I mentioned uh, originally back to 1884, uh, this site was a sugar mill uh, uh, operation and, and plantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more recently, for several decades now, we've been sourcing our molasses from a, a local sugar mill. It's only 20 minutes away. And there's still, uh, yes, local sugarcane grown in this area. Uh, when it comes to our water, we actually do collect the rainwater off our buildings and our warehouses. And okay. then we uh, store that water and that's our, our water source that then goes back through our fermentation and uh, the, the distillery process. And, uh, as, and just on that, um, part of that, just because we are located next to a river and just historically, uh, we've been flooded uh, four times in the last 130 years. The whole distillery operation's been underwater several times uh you know even back to the latest floods in 2017 mm. uh, actually shut us down for six months um uh, really we could get back up to speed yes wow and that that's one thing we show here on, on the particularly on our column stills when you go through a distillery tour you actually see basically the watermarks of of each flood that we've had through and and you know when you walk through our warehouses yeah you, you'd essentially be you know six eight ten feet underwater um, during those floods, uh, but then coming back to our process, yeah, the the, the yeast that we use. Uh, if, if I ro- roll back to the mid two thousands, uh, the, the distillery operations here are actually a hundred percent focused on on uh, pombe yeast. Okay. And uh, we don't we don't at the moment, but we certainly do have the equipment and and facilities here to be able to do a hundred percent pombe uh, culture. Uh, for both our pot and column operations. Uh, and it is something that I'm looking at uh, reinvigorating and re- reinstating in the future. Um, but right now, our focus is just on uh, the, the current issues at hand with this uh, hand sanitizer mm-hmm. and those things, but just really ramping up our, our uh, particularly our pot rum production. Sure. And, and for those who um, who may not have as you know big uh, knowledge of, of yeast as you know uh, people who are into distilling, what what about Pombe yeast is kind of unique, or, or what are some of the things it does for rum um, that that people may not know about? Oh, it's just uh, basically the, the slower growing uh, yeast. It uh, does tend to uh, longer fermentations, slower fermentations, and this is what we we see over in the Caribbean uh, and also you know in uh, Cuba back in the early mid 1900s, and really trying to create a higher ester uh, or funk or mm-hmm. uh, rum product. 
And so when we look at, for example, using Cerevisia yeast, for example, our standard uh, ester count in our, in our rum, our pot rum, sits around 220 uh, grams per litre um, as an ester count. But then if we go back to our Pombe yeast, use fermentation in our pot rums, we, we'd get up around 500 to 560 mm grams per litre as an ester count. So just for just for those those rum geeks that like their funky rums. Yeah. Uh, it is it is if you're out there and looking for Bean Lee uh, product, um, we, there's a there's an iconic Australian rum brand called uh, Inner Circle. And uh, as I say back in the mid two thousands that that brand uh, which is what actually we do own that brand now and we do make that inner circle brand portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that, if if you can source a bottle from the mid two thousands, it was a hundred percent Pombe fermentation based uh, distillate, so a higher ester count. Right, and is that all copper pot still, or is that using all the stills you have? Back in that time with the Pombe, it uh, was uh, what we do here um, is basically a single blended rum where it is a wash column uh, run first, okay. then it goes through into our pot. Got it. So it is a blend. Okay. Yes. Okay. And kind of thinking about that in mind, and uh, I, as I was kind of researching the product line myself as well, and, and learning about the operation, um, it occurred to me that you've got the the copper pot still, but you've also got the two continuous column stills. Um, I was thinking about Australia's long history back to England, uh, and then that you were using 100% molasses as the basis for all your spirits, and and so I was thinking kind of like, well, this is probably closer to a British style. Now having you spoken just now about a lot about you know the funk and the high esters and jamaican style um that has me thinking well maybe there's some commonality with australia's style being jamaican uh as well which you know jamaican and british are quite close as well so i i was going to ask then uh, with all those things in mind how would you explain to somebody who's never had an australian rum what the kind of profile is great question it's a matter of looking into into the the history of the rum distilling here and rum brands available in Australia. Until the uh, late 1970s, the Beanley rum product was actually all pot distilled. It was put through two separate vat stills, mm-hmm. uh, which we do still have on site here. Uh, they haven't been used since the 1970s. And then the, then the Beanley profile transitioned to a column uh, product. And then more recently, uh, it will 2004 onwards it transitioned again into a single blended rum of uh, a wash column first and then the pot distillation uh, second uh, but, but then if you look across at other brands like Bundaberg rum for example mm-hmm. uh, they've always had a wash column and, and pot process again single blended rum uh, and then if you look historically back to uh, uh, the third main rum distiller in Australia uh, which was the uh, CSR or Colonia Sugar Refinery, their uh, inner circle rum brand. They were a, a pot still uh, rum as well. And they used to be, uh, again, back in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, was a, was a 100% Pombe-based product. Now, putting all that together uh, across what would be considered an Australian rum, to me, in my opinion, it actually comes down to the maturation process. Ah. Is that all three, all three, all three hmm. distilleries uh, actually have the commonality that uh, the vat, uh, sorry, the rum was typically aged in uh, vats, mm-hmm. uh, large maturation vats, 100% in those vats, 
uh, or it was a combination uh, of uh, vat maturation and barrel maturation. Hmm. And you see that in the Bundaberg uh, rum operations. You see that here in Beanley, and historically I've also seen it uh, and aware of it with the uh, CSR uh, Inner Circle Distillery down in Sydney. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up aging because I, I know that you use a, a variety of cask types for, for the various expressions that you're bottling now at, at Binley. Um, but, but you know, everything also goes into those, I think they're ex-brandy vats that you have at, at Brandy that, that hold that rum for, I think, up to five years before it goes into barrels. Um, and that's not something you see, uh, you know, at many rum distilleries. So can, can you kind of tell us about the role that that process of, of vatting those rums plays and the reasoning behind using them in the aging process? Absolutely. Uh, just to give a background for, for listeners, uh, the vats that we do have here on site, uh, a bit of a history lesson in themselves. Uh, we have four 17,000 litre vats that are 130 years old. These, these are the ones that you mentioned that you mentioned spending some time with every morning, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it, it's an, uh, they're absolute treasures. Uh, we don't have an exact date on them, but we know that they're late 1800s, early 1900s that they've been here on site. Mm. Uh, then we have uh, eight 22,000 litre vats, which have been here since the 1920s. So we're currently looking at around 100 years here on site. Uh, and then we have a further 21 9,000 litre ex-brandy vats, which were previous from a, an Australian brandy distillery. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have 1,000 plus uh, ex-bourbon barrels. Uh, so our, our barrels uh, are all... Um, bourbon barrel uh, maturation mm -hmm. other than a handful of extra Australian port barrels that we have here at the moment as well. So in Australia, we do, we do have a two year uh, minimum age statement uh, that it has to be on wood for that time. And so these older vats that we have, uh, even our white rum is aged up to three or five years in these uh, vats. So considering as, as old as what they are and, and the many, many, liters of rum that have gone through them over the years, they, they, they've quite quite a neutral uh, flavor uh, or character that comes out of those vats now. So we did, that's where we tend to hold our, our white rum okay. in those vats uh, to at least hit that minimum two years. But uh, we tend to find in between the three to five years in those vats is, is a flavor profile that we have a preference for in our, in our white rum. Now, the, where those vats are is our, the original building on site. Again, that warehouse dates back to the late 1890s. There's brick walls that are about three foot thick. It's almost like an old jail cell. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, all, all the uh, black moulds growing on the walls. Uh, it's just, just fantastic atmosphere. It's and, character. And, yeah, oh, absolutely. That's, right. that's, that's, that's what we call it, the Bean Lee character. Exactly. <laughs> So with our, with, with our maturation focus at Bean Lee here, as I say, it's always included fat maturation or a combination of fat and barrel. And, and our typical maturation strength is, uh, sits around 78.8% ABV. So it is quite high. And uh, as I've said, with the fat maturation here in Australia, we, we tend to see that across the three major distilleries of Bundaberg, Beanley, and CSR. So, is that mostly motivated by that two-year minimum age requirement? Ah, uh, yes. Like if we if we historically looked, you know, across the last century, 
not just in in the rum or spirits industries, and even looking at Australian whiskey, you, you look across into into Australian uh, wine industry, and and this is one of the reasons why we have the brandy vats here, is that yeah, you look at logistically where Australia sits to the rest of the world, we're we're almost you know falling off the edge of the map, right? And I mean we're we're communicating across separate days right now. That's how far away we are. Yeah. It's Sunday here. Uh, in the states, and I know it's very early Monday morning for you, so that that definitely gives us an appreciation for the distance. That's it. Uh, I've got a beautiful sunrise out the window here at the moment while I'm talking to you guys, and and taking that in while uh, we're talking about the the history of Australian rum. Uh, so when when we look at the development of the Australian rum industry, but but also spirits and wine, uh, it's just a lot more cost effective to be looking to build. Uh, and look long-term uh, cost effectiveness of building large vats for maturation versus importing a lot of barrels right. into Australia. Like, yes, that's how cargo was freighted backwards and forwards from the UK or India to here or from here back to the UK. And uh, But then just, just the scalability just wasn't there at the time. But in saying that, when we do look at the wine industry out here, we typically find a lot of French oak that's been utilised over the years. And so, for example, a tangent here is Australian whiskey. We actually find quite a lot of Australian whiskies using Australian wine barrels or French mm. oak barrels that have been utilised in the in the wine industry. So interesting. For our craft distilleries out here, there's uh, quite a lot of diversity in the barrels and the wood. Uh, maturation to meet that minimum two years but then uh, as we as we start to move you know through history more modern history of you know the u.s prohibition world war ii mm. we start to see that influx of bourbon barrels throughout the industry that we know right through uh, and the availability of those barrels out here in australia uh, but even in the 1970s here at Bean Lee, they used to use uh, old uh, beer barrels for the maturation. Wow. Um, so that's just a bit of a, a snapshot of utilisation of, of the resources, I guess. Um, and that's the, that's one of the reasons why there's been that preference historically for the for the vat maturation. Mm-hmm. But it, do, it does stem from the uh, the Royal Navy back in the the docks in the UK the Deptford Navy docks and and using the vat maturation hmm. there interesting yeah and, and so it sounds you know I, I'm trying to uh, imagine um, sort of the differences one might pick up in a rum that's been through that vatting process versus one that's been barreled uh, for the duration of its of its aging period so it sounds like you know it may take on some of the characteristics of wood but it'll it'll be dramatically less influenced by the wood than it would be if it were you know in a 53 gallon uh, ex bourbon barrel for example is that is that correct Oh, absolutely. Like we we do have some uh, rum here that is 100% barrel aged from from day one, and you yeah, absolutely do pick up the differences. The the vats are certainly a lot more mellow, uh, or a lighter flavour. But it's all a matter of how much those vats have been used previously and how old they are. Like I say, we've got some here, you know, using the the numbers of 100 years old, 130 years old. Well, they're very neutral in character. Um, based on, you know, we are, we do have a maturation proof, uh, say here, of 78 odd uh, ABV. So there's certainly not a lot of flavor left in, in those bats. Mm-hmm. And it's, and some of, as I say, then it's more about uh, us uh, 
with our two-year minimum age on wood here. Hmm. So yeah, and thinking about all the history that you just kind of went through and giving us that as a background, how does that translate to the current landscape of what Australian rum looks like or has looked like now? Uh, In other words, have you seen anything over the last few years that signaled any kind of interest or change relative to what's come before? Has there been any current trends uh, or anything along those lines? Absolutely. Uh, As the world as we know, it's getting smaller and smaller through technology. We're definitely in the marketplace here. We see, we're seeing a huge influx of international rums and brands you know, in front of Australian consumers or purchasing online and or getting direct out of distilleries internationally. So mm-hmm. in our marketplace here with a two-year uh, on wood rule, that immediately restricts us or has restricted us in the marketplace for a lot of unaged or products or agricultural-style products that yeah, the rest of the world has available. And until recently, those products just haven't been available in Australia. So mm-hmm. it, it's almost, uh, yeah, we don't know any different scenario. But then, and this is where the major brands in Australia have had their foothold for so long. And that's where I referred to Bundaberg, Beanley, and previously with the, the CSR rum. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is now with a lot of the new craft rum distilleries coming into the the forefront um, now in the industry, we have these international rums available to us and the quality of those rums, and and they're creating benchmarks for us Mm. um, to to evaluate for the quality of what a contemporary uh, Australian rum should be at a world-class quality. Uh, that can compete in the international market. Now, we are very grateful um, and uh, very positive with the quality of our rum that's well accepted in in the European market. We're actually, uh, we have several independent bottlers over in Europe that have released Beanley bottlings. uh, And and just to give a snapshot of of, and cover some of those off, we've got... uh, the Maison de Whiskey with their transcontinental rum line. They just released the Bean Lee. Ah, uh, yeah. I've seen one of those labeled Australia and I was I was wondering if it came from Binley or not. Yes. Yes, it has. Uh, then we also, in France, we have Company de Indy with their Australia release. Okay. That's a Bean Lee bottling as well. Uh, Le Esprit uh, in France as well. Uh, they have two Bean Lee uh, releases. Uh, rum Artisanel in, out of uh, Germany. At Cane Island out of the uh, Netherlands. And as of last week, we have a SBS or single barrel collection uh, by the guys in Denmark. Ah, that's fantastic. So we certainly have a, a range of our bottlings available uh, in Europe through, through these different brands. And we do supply into that market. So, and then that's, that's great feedback uh, for us that these guys do, do see the quality of Bean Lee and have got it on the world stage up against the other just world-class distilleries and brands in, in those uh, bottling uh, portfolios. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, when, when when one of those independent bottlers approaches you, what does that process look like? What does the, the conversation look like? Do they come with you looking for specific things? Uh, I, that, that process is just so fascinating to me. I'm curious if you have any insight there. We do have uh, bulk clients that we do sell our rum to okay. uh, in Europe. So there's that. But we also are in discussion with direct with these independent bottlers as well. And we have had them on site here 
and we run through our samples uh, of our offering of uh, what we our rum parcels or, or uh, what we have available for that uh, market. We allocate um, the liquid that we're willing to sell or able to sell uh, to bulk customers. Right. And so then it's just a matter of evaluating uh, samples, getting their feedback, and uh, then some of them we're actually working with specific blends on. Uh, or it might be a, a vintage release of a specific year. Gotcha. And I know you mentioned getting that feedback from them has been really meaningful and, and helpful. Looking back, is there anything you can recall hearing that sticks out in memory uh, as you know as uh, something important that was shared with you or, or particularly memorable? Oh, I think I think it's just that general consensus of it is like the the Beanley product is is world class. This is something people want, right? Absolutely. Like we, we can go back to the 1800s and Beanley Rum was winning gold medals internationally at, at you know, international exhibitions and world's fairs. And, now, and you know, now in this day and age, it's considered world class amongst all these other brands that, that we all know and all these, these classic uh, rum distilleries, you know, whether it's from Barbados, Jamaica, Guyana. Etc. We 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 are there on the world stage. And I know we we uh, you know alluded to what what's being out there on the independent bottling market. I do want to talk a little bit about the expressions that uh, you guys at Benley are bottling yourselves. Uh, you mentioned the the white rum expression, but I know that there are many more beyond that. Can you kind of just give us an overview of the the current Benley rum range and and what you guys are prioritizing right now? Absolutely. Uh, our main product that we have is our five-year uh, double cask. Um, so essentially, it's uh, we have a, a brandy vats, but we also have our bourbon barrel, and it is a, a, a blend of the two. Uh, then we also have our seven-year aged port barrel. That is my favorite out of the range. Oh, interesting. And uh, so it's uh, aged seven years in uh, ex Australian port uh, barrels from a and, and those barrels have specifically been sourced from iconic Sepultsfield uh, winery in Australia that uh, has a, it's just absolutely uh, beautiful barrels and uh, cooperage down there in the Barossa Valley. Uh, then we also have our 10 year uh, age product that is the oldest bottling that we do offer. Okay. And then uh, we have, as I was mentioning earlier, we have a separate brand portfolio, which is the Inner Circle Rum. And with those, there's there's three on offer. We have what we call the red dot, the green dot, and the black dot. And so, for example, the green dot is an AV strength at 57.2. Mm-hmm. And then we have the black dot, which is our, our classic 33 OP or 75.9 ABV. Oh, nice. Uh, high strength. Uh, rum and that's probably my second favorite yeah that my mind was going straight when you when you said that that's uh that would be on my list of uh rums i would want to sample for sure and also steve you had mentioned earlier about inner circle and that you all at benley are now producing that as well can you tell us a little bit about how that inner circle brand also fits into what you're doing there overall and and maybe if there's future plans in line for that uh, so just very quickly from the historical context, the Inner Circle rum was produced and commercially available between 1968 and 1986 in Australia. And it was originally produced by CSR, the Colonial Sugar Refinery Distillery down in Sydney. And so how that came about is uh, CSR owned uh, the majority or the monopoly on the sugar industry in Australia. And they were sourced molasses from separate 
uh, sugar mills, and then they would distill that molasses and and mature it. And then they would have these different parcels of rum that would essentially be from the different sources of molasses, mm-hmm. and they could blend that together to create this this rum that was termed as the inner circle. It was only available to the uh, board of directors. Oh, so very exclusive. Yes, the inner circle of the of the CSR company. So they commercially had that released, uh, and until uh, up until the mid nineteen eighties, uh, then it went disappeared off the market, and then in the early two thousands, it was reintroduced into the Australian market, and that uh, it was a uh, product that was uh, made here at uh, Beanley Distillery. Mm-hmm. And in a, a couple of years there, in the early 2000s, the uh, rum for the Inner Circle uh, bottling was actually 100% Fiji mm. product. Uh, so it was it was sourced out of the South Pacific Distillery in Fiji, okay. uh, bottled. And uh, at that time, in the early 2000s, that, that's what the Inner Circle rum was known as. And the reason and the background of why Fiji is because, again, that goes back to the the heritage or history of the CSR colonial sugar refinery. They, they started the sugar industry in, in Fiji and they used to own the sugar mill and the distillery in Fiji. And so moving into the mid 2000s, the inner circle rum then became backed into Australian uh, produced here at Beanlee, 100% origin and has been ever since. Um, and But at that time, the mid-2000s, that's where I refer back to, it was 100% Pombe right. for fermented uh, rum. Uh, but since then, we, we've moved away from that back to the more classic Cerevisiae uh, uh, fermentation. And that's where, that's where we're at today. Now, looking into the future, it's not necessarily a portfolio that we want to play a lot with. We, we're really trying to, to respect the uh, inner circle brand for, for what it is uh, and that history and heritage, but we're always open to ideas. So I won't say that there's nothing in the pipeline. Right. So, so essentially the Binley line is, is the, the flagship and inner circle is sort of uh, available at a more exclusive level uh, in terms of what you're doing there and what you're producing. Uh, yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and for those that want that higher strength, cast right. As I say, we're looking at the Navy or, or the, the 33AP at, at the higher end of the spectrum. That makes you part of the inner circle. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so looking ahead, I know right now uh, you're, you're focused on hand sanitizer, as you mentioned earlier. Once, you know, hopefully things uh, things return to normal and you're able to get back to rum production, what, what does the near-term future look like for Binley? Are there any experiments you guys are working on? Any any new directions you're thinking of taking product-wise uh, that you can share? I'm curious what, you know, the, the short-term uh, future outlook looks like for you. I can't reveal too much at this stage, but... Uh... We, as I, as I mentioned earlier, back in 2017, we, we were out of action for about six months with recovering from a, a flood that we had through the distillery. And at that time, we actually had a couple of ferments down and uh, they, we kept them, we maintained them over that six month period and then put them through our, our uh, distillery process uh, afterwards. And, so, and we have barreled that rum and we've put it aside and we are looking to release that as a uh, anniversary edition uh, fr- from that 2017 flood. That's awesome. Now, it, it does absolutely have its own character from that longer fermentation. Right. And then, then the uh, distillation after that's 
six odd months of, of fermentation time that that we just had to lock it down and and, and maintain mm-hmm. it. And so we do certainly see a different flavor profile coming through from that. And we are looking at an anniversary release for that. I can't give away any timelines <laughs> or deadlines. That's okay. You've given us the tantalizing information we came for. So thank you for that. Yes, the plans are there. Uh, so Steve, I know you, uh, one thing I've noticed about you is you're a pretty frequent poster in a Facebook group called Rum History uh, that some of our, our listeners may be familiar with. Uh, you, you share a lot of kind of historic documentation related to rum production in Australia and all over the world. So uh, it's it's clear to me that you don't stop thinking about rum when you leave the distillery. So one of the things I love asking rum-obsessed people is where they go to learn about rum. So what are some of your favorite sources right now? Are there certain topics you're particularly interested in studying right now? Um, where do you go when you want to learn something about rum? Uh, great question. Uh, and just to give some backstory here, it was only recently uh, through my own rum history journey, I realized that part of my personal family history results from the sugarcane uh, and sugar mill pioneers of Australia. Oh, interesting. Yeah, back in the 1870s, uh, I think it's my great-great-grandfather immigrated to Australia. Wow. Uh, and on board that boat at the time, he was bringing out here uh, sugarcane milling equipment from the UK. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, uh, I, I grew up only a few miles uh, away from two heritage-listed ruins, some of the older sugarcane mills and also rum distilleries in Australia that date back to 1866 and 1868. And so when we look at the, the history, uh, as I've outlined, of rum here and the expansion of the sugarcane industry across Australia, it's not just something you can isolate uh, in time without considering the colonial influences of the Dutch in mm. Indonesia or, or Java, right. the Spanish up in the Philippines, we've got the English uh, in India and then coming down into Malaysia and then Australia. Uh, then we've got the French out, also out in the Pacific Islands. And so there's that whole melting pot across the Asia-Pacific region for not just Australian rum but Asian-Pacific rum as a whole. And so more my, my focus at the moment is, is delving in really into the Bean Lee uh, distillery history. And that includes, as you mentioned earlier, that the Walrus, the floating sugar milk and distillery. And we, we do have quite uh, significant archives here still on site uh, at Bean Lee of a lot of this mm. information. So it's it, back to the 1870s, 1880s. So there's quite a lot of content here to uh, to go through in our archives and uh, one of the other topics within the, the Beanley history is really looking into the original pot stills that we still have here now from a from a design perspective they actually are considered vat stills which you really don't see anymore mm-hmm. uh, in the industry now the yes they, they are copper pot uh, vat stills but if you're actually were to compare the, the rectifying column on top of these vats, it, the shape and size of them are almost identical to the uh, rectifying columns on the Port uh, Morant still out of Demerara. Ah, mm-hmm. right. Uh, the, the famed Guyana uh, still uh, utilized uh, still to this day in a lot of the diamond distillery blends. Absolutely. So... The, the shape and, and design of the actual rectifying section of that column, they look almost identical. However, our pots here are actually a copper pot instead of the wooden bat 
aspect uh, of the portmorant. Right. But uh, in saying that, I've actually seen uh, archive photos back to the 1930s where it looks like these same stills at that time actually were wooden bats and they've been replaced with copper pots over the years. Yeah. Really? Mm. Wow. That is fascinating. And to clarify, are those are those stills used at all currently, or are they just you know just kind of sitting there to the side as artifacts? Ah, uh, they they're museum pieces. They haven't been used here since at least the mid nineteen seventies. Okay. And we've we have had a couple of visitors come through and and spot them straight away. And and the first thing they ask, do they still work? Are they still op- operational? Said so, no, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. From a you know, rum geek or distillery geek's perspective. And and part of that uh, history focus for me is not just the stills, but the actual distillers in the early 1900s here at Beanley actually had come across out of, the, out of that British colony of Guyana and Demerara uh, out here to Beanley, and they were the head distillers here in the early 1900s. So Oh, wow. So the, the connections don't stop right there. Right. It's, we've, it's, we've, we do have this Demerara influence yeah. in and not just uh, the equipment here or, or the style of the bat stills, but actually the influence from the distillers at that time. Right. It's always exciting when you kind of like find that missing link that connects, you know, a piece of history for you and makes it come together and really makes sense, right? Oh, absolutely. The connecting the dots. It's uh, fantastic. So yeah. I guess uh, you, you've asked about favorite resources. So a couple that come to mind uh, always is... Uh, Matt Petrick, a cocktail one. Heard of him. <laughs> Indispensable. Absolutely. Uh, also, Stephen Schellenberger at Boston Apothecary. Uh, yeah, I knew. I knew when you started talking about Pamba yeast that you that you were probably a member of the Boston Apothecary faithful. Yeah. Yep. Just, just, uh, <laughs> just the the content there. It's it's always great bedtime reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful resource for sure. And of course, I can't miss the American Rum Report. Oh wow! Well, yeah, thank you very much. It's pretty good. I've seen that guy a few times. He's he's cool. He's yeah. cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We do award bonus points for that on this podcast, so <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> and then uh, also, yeah, in more modern times, just just what Luca Gagano is doing with Valier, yeah. like with Clarin, and, and keeping those traditions alive with a traditional uh, rum and cane spirit over in Haiti, uh, but also what he's done with Caroni and the Caroni releases over the years in trying to preserve and maintain uh, that, that product. And, and obviously now it's it's almost be seen as the holy grail of rum. For sure. As you know, for bottlings that are available. Yeah, I actually, on the note of rum resources uh, and Caroni, I just read uh, a, what I thought was a pretty interesting comparative tasting post earlier today that was published on uh, rumrevelations.com, where he took uh, a Velier Caroni, I think a Black Adder Caroni, maybe a, a Duncan Taylor Caroni, and did like a blind comparison tasting to all of them. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was really interesting to me uh, how the results came out, so... Uh, check that out if, if uh, you're interested in Caroni for sure. Absolutely. And yes, uh, then there's uh, another his, uh, basically Australian historian here, uh, John Kerr. He's yeah. done a lot of work over the years with the different sugarcane uh, mills, plantations, a lot of the history in Australia, the sugarcane industry, So, and, and author of several books. So uh, that that's where that the Australian history comes from for me. Uh, but aside from all of that, I'm actually... 
uh, studying the, the uh, diploma of distilling out of the IBD uh, Institute Brewing and Distilling over in the UK. Oh, interesting. At the moment. So I certainly keep myself busy. Yeah. yeah. I know you told us that you'd been up since uh, 3 a.m., so now I now I see why. <laughs> 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 so, Steve, um, the way we always like to uh, end these interviews is with a uh, segment that John run, runs uh, where he asks a few rapid-fire questions. So I'll let John transition to that and introduce the concept to you right now. Sure. Sure. So essentially the idea here is we're going very quickly through uh, a set of questions and with brief and short answers as best as possible to get through as many of these as we can in one minute um so if you're game we can do it absolutely awesome so just to keep in mind this is you know somewhat silly somewhat serious and everything in between and uh we just try to have fun with it so um will whenever you're ready all right i've got a minute on the clock and go all right neat or on the rocks neat column pot or blend pot from your perspective, do you think Australians drink rum upside down, or do you think people in the Northern Hemisphere drink their rum upside down? Doesn't matter. It's, it's uh, how you enjoy it. <laughs> what country not named Australia makes the best rum in the world? Barbados. All right. Your favorite person to share a bottle of rum with? My wife. The internet says it's illegal in Australia to force a kangaroo to drink more than six beers. In your experience, would you have to force a kangaroo to drink Binley, or would they do it willingly? Oh, absolutely. You do it willingly. <laughs> the best rum bar you've ever been to in all of Australasia? Uh, rum bar, Ellie Beach. Is there any truth to the rumor that there exists an inner inner circle rum that's even more difficult to get than inner circle rum is? <laughs> it's who you know. It's not what you know. <laughs> all right. Uh, what do you drink when you can't get rum? Scotch. All right. I actually know a dude named Ben Lee here in Miami. Would you be more likely to give him a job as a brand rep or sue him for copyright infringement? Ah, uh, depends what it's worth. All, All right. right. That's a minute. I think we have to stop the questions after that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank right. you, Steve. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. No worries, guys. Thanks so much, Steve. That was great. Uh, we appreciate you uh, waking up extra early to do this interview with us. Uh, that's fine. I've, I've got a day of work ahead of me. So uh, anything for the rum world. Awesome. Well, we hope we've made it a, a great start to a great day there for you. And thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. All right, everyone. Thank you again for tuning into this interview with Steve McGarry. If you want to learn more about Binley Distillery, you can go to binleyrum.com.au. That's binleyrum.com.au. Binley is spelled B-E-E-N-L-E-I-G-H. It's having to mentally check my spelling there. So check that out. Also, you can find them on uh, Instagram, Facebook, social media. Catch up with them there. You'll also see Steve commenting frequently in, in different uh, rum groups on Facebook. So I encourage you to go there. Check them out. Dig deeper into the history of rum in Australia. Um, I hope you found it as fascinating as we did. Yeah, and uh, as speaking of social media, as always, if you uh, enjoyed this episode of the Rumcast, uh, we would ask that you uh, follow us on social media as well. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, we would love to hear from you about what you thought about this episode. And finally, but perhaps most importantly, we just want to leave everyone with the message of drinking rum responsibly. Uh, at this time when many of us are quarantined in our homes uh, and have no real place to go and nowhere to be many of the days, and with a great home bar, that it can be enticing for us to drink uh, quite a bit of rum while we're doing that. So we just want to uh, contribute to the message of drinking rum responsibly and drinking in moderation. Um, thank you all again for listening to this episode of the Rumcast, and we will see you next time. Yep, we'll talk to you then.